Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Let's talk, oh yes, about Christchurch's Catholic Basilica. When it was destroyed by the 2010-2011 earthquakes, something very out of the ordinary was discovered buried beneath. It was an assortment of bone fragments and metalwork and other relics which were discovered inside coffee jars which had been buried for half a century. And a new exhibition opening this week featuring these relics is putting a spotlight on the city's Catholic and alternative Pākehā history. Obviously, this all brings up a few questions like, who put it there? Why did they do it? And whose bones are in that coffee jar? To help us answer some of those questions, and also to explore some of the insights they give us, uh, well, this history gives us into the faith and culture of the Ōtotahi Catholic faithful, is University of Canterbury medieval historian and co-curator of the exhibition, Dr. Chris Jones. Chris, kia ora. Thank you so much for coming on. Kia ora, Emil. Hello. Greetings from the sweltering Garden City. Um, although, if you don't mind me saying first, I, I think Taylor Swift deserves more airtime. Yeah, I we mean... We could continue that discussion. You caught, you, know? my, you, you caught me slandering Taylor Swift while, while, while Bonnie <laughs> was checking the quality of your line, and I'm dreadfully embarrassed by that. But I'll stick by my guns here. Well, I, I did, but, you know, I, I think, you know, you can go either way on that topic. Like, you know. <laughs> Let's not get into that. I'm, I'm worried for my health and safety um, if, if we go much further down this path. Um, <laughs> Chris, this is an amazing story, this one. Uh, I, you know, I guess the fundamental question is, what's the story with these relics? Who buried them there? Why on earth did they do it? Well, I mean, they're a fascinating discovery. Um, they basically came to light in 2021. They were uncovered as the the old basilica was being uh, deconstructed um, due to the earthquake damage. And they'd been there since the mid-1970s. So they were put basically uh, into, a, in, into coffee jars. As you say, there were three uh, coffee jars and there's a mix of bone and, and metal work, reliquies, what we, you know, what we, what we call the containers for relics, and also some papers. And it's actually the papers that go into one of the coffee jars that, that tell us uh, when, they, when they were put there. They were put there in April 1975. Uh, the jars went into a steel box. The steel box went under the floor, and it was concrete skimmed across the top. So they, they were seriously buried. And they were put there by a man called Father Kevin Clark, and he was the Catholic diocese's archivist at the time. And very unfortunately, uh, we can't ask Father Clark uh, why he did this. Um, because uh, he, he died uh, shortly, actually, before 
the, the, the items were uncovered. Oh, um, we think that this fits into a sort of broader pattern because in the early 1960s, uh, there are big changes in the Catholic Church. There's a, a, a huge gathering in Rome called Vatican II, yeah. and it introduced a lot of changes. And that change really, it, it doesn't change the status of, of what we term relics. And I mean, we have to chat about what, what actually a relic is, uh, if you like. But it, it doesn't change the status of relics, but it does sort of take the emphasis off them. And what we think happens is when they're renovating the cathedral in the 1970s, they just sort of take this opportunity uh, to take the, the, the focus off them in a very dramatic way uh, and to sort of bury them under the floor. And it's actually the fact that they're put in with a note suggests that one day Father Clark thought someone is going to uncover yeah, them. Exactly. Yeah. And you find actually there, there are cases of relics that were, uh, you know, put into uh, hidden in walls and things a thousand years ago. And they're almost always put in with a note um, saying who put them in and what they are. So, you know, people were clearly expecting these things to be found at some point. So they've been there for 40, 46 years. What an amazing, it's an amazing discovery. You, um, you, this is clearly not your first radio because you anticipated my question. What makes a relic? Ah, well, you know, um, this this is, can be a controversial issue. So usually um, in, in the, the Roman Catholic Church today and, and in um, the, the pre-Reformation um, Western Christian Church and indeed uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church, um, a relic is usually considered to be a, a body or, or part of a body um, from a saint. So a saint, uh, someone who is considered effectively uh, to have gone straight to heaven. They're, they're a holy person. Um, there is you know, uh, an assumption that because they're so holy, they would have performed miracles during their lifetime, mm-hmm. or those miracles have been observed afterwards, or one, one of those categories. And because of that, they are categorized effectively as being this, this saint. And what the relic does is it sort of gives the connection. It creates the connection to the person. But there are different classes. So it doesn't just have to be the body. It can be things that came into contact with the body. So this exhibition has fibers from the bag of St. Francis, for example. So, you know, he carried his bag around, there are some fibers, or it has stone from a tomb, or most famously, and and indeed most controversially, um, bits of wood from the cross on which Christ was crucified. Yes. So that's one of those, you know, terribly controversial relics that, you know, some people are are, are very certain of and other people are less certain of, uh, and it's always been a a matter of great debate. Um, But it's those items that are somehow connected or seem to be connected with these particular individuals, um, some of them from the Bible, some of them later, um, the whole range of people going all the way up to the, the 20th century. So the Catholic Church still, uh, you know, canonizes, makes people saints mm-hmm. uh, in, in the 20th and indeed the 21st century. Uh, and they would have relics as well. So it can be clothing. It can be all sorts of things, really. Um, a very great variety. Now, as a medieval historian, you can probably talk me through this because uh, I am very curious about the process as to how you establish the veracity or otherwise of the authenticity of these um, relics. Well, yes, this this is a tricky one. So authenticity uh, is always a sort of uh, a challenge. Now, um, we don't in the Middle Ages, um, I, I sort of in, in myself tend to divide this into two parts. There's sort of a period from about let's say, 1150 forward to now. And we don't have anything resembling a sort of modern chain of custody. Mm. 
but we can, generally speaking, trace the relics that that come out of that later medieval, early modern. So let's let's say, just for sake of argument, you know, the last thousand or so years, sure. nine hundred thousand years. So we can generally get a good sense there. So if someone says, you know, this is a relic of Thomas Becket or this is a relic of St Francis of Assisi, generally speaking. Um, I would say, as a medievalist, I would I would never you know say I'm 100 percent certain of something, but I would say you know I, I could I could probably get behind that sort of 90 to 95 percent. I can be fairly certain. Um, the issue is when we go sort of further back and we don't really have the chain of custody. Now, in some cases, we, we can be very certain. So there is a medieval saint called Cuthbert, um, who, who is a, an Anglo-Saxon saint. We're going back 1,500 years here. Um, we, we, we have Cuthbert's coffin, um, the monk's who decided Cuthbert was a saint. They carried around his body uh, wherever they went. Uh, it ended up in Durham in, in Northern England, and, and it's still there. And there we've got a very clear sense of who Cuthbert was, where his body is, and we're fairly certain of it. But as an historian, generally speaking, the earliest we can tend to go back is into the period when Christianity is legalized in the Roman Empire. So as an historian, I, I like evidence. I, I want to see, you know, definite comments. I want to see uh, information and that sort of material before about the year 300. So let's say for the first 250 years or so of Christianity, very hard to come by because Christianity is illegal. Right. Christianity is persecuted. Yeah. Uh, you get a lot of saints because they're being executed by the Roman state. And so there are traditions, but, you know, whether one accepts those traditions or not ultimately becomes a matter of faith. Um, for me as an historian, I can find my written accounts, my evidence, my Roman legal documents. There I'm, I'm sort of in the fourth century. So there I'm, I'm sort of getting a sense of things. Now, what I can say there is that there are a lot of early individuals who we might not be certain that the relics directly connect to them, but the individuals certainly existed. So someone like St. George, for example, um, who gets a lot of stories around him, most famously dragons. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm afraid, if you don't mind me saying that, that's a myth. You, 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 okay, that. you're happy to, yeah. rebuff, to rebut that particular I, I, I'm claim. I'm rebuffing dragons. Yeah, okay. there, there are no dragons. I, right. I'm, I'm sorry, I know you're going to get calls, possibly emailed. Indeed. Um, I'll, do, know, I'll but, redirect them to you, don't worry about it. Yeah, oh, please do, please do. Um, but no, okay, well, with George, we're, we're fairly certain he's an early master. Um, and then he gets a lot of stuff accumulating around him. But there are other individuals, um, and one of them, for example, is called Catherine of Alexandria. Now, she's very, very popular as a saint in the Middle Ages. Um, but in the 1960s, the, the Roman Catholic Church looks at a number of cases, and they say for Catherine, well, look, the earliest written evidence is 500 years after this person was supposed to have lived. Mm -hmm. And so we're very uncertain about that, and you end up with a demotion. So people are sort of uh, removed from being saints, or in Catherine's case, uh, they become a sort of local, only recognised locally. And so there's a lot of sort of, um, I would say, more modern historical methods applied uh, to some of these individuals. But in, in general sense, your, your question of authenticity, it, it is challenging. Ultimately, in many of the earlier cases, it comes down to the faith of individual believers as an historian, I always have to go by the evidence base. Mm. Um, and in some cases, for the, the later medieval, the, uh, the early modern saints, it is very clear. And in other cases, there aren't necessarily reasons to doubt traditions. Um, 
but there are always going to be challenges, um, particularly when you're dealing with what is effectively an illegal persecuted group mm-hmm. um, who don't have any property rights or anything like that. So it, it becomes very, very challenging. But what we can say is that in many, many cases, the, the people, we certainly know they existed, um, the connection to the relics specifically, well, you know, some traditions are better than others, if I can sort of give you that as a as a sort of answer. Sure. Yeah, no, I understand. I understand. No, that was that, that, that was very interesting, actually. It took us on a whirlwind trip of uh, being an historian. Um, now, I mean, some of the you, you've been through some of the objects that are going to be on display. One one that's not is um, the human remains <laughs> that are in one of the jars. My word, what a sentence that is. Um, do we know who that who that particular person is and how they ca- came to be in uh, the possession of of the man who buried these? Well, we don't know all the items. So we have, for example, a, uh, a jawbone, half a jawbone, uh-huh. uh, that um, is still very clearly a jawbone with, with teeth in place. And there is a label, uh, what looks to be a medieval label, which we can partly decipher uh, telling us who we think the saint might be. Um, but I think, you know, there there are broad sensitivities uh, that we need to take account of there. So with some relics that we're displaying, there, there are... Um, small fragments of bone involved, uh, but not as recognisable uh, as as uh, an actual, you know, as, as, a, as a limb or, a, or anything that you would identify as being a, a part of a body. Sure. Um, and we've also got, you know, relics that are letters uh, that people have written and relics that are, are threads from, from items or even stone that relates to people's tombs. So that there's a, a wide variety. And as I say, actually, one of those fragments uh, of, of what is thought to be the true cross is actually on display. Um, but, you know, some of the other items we we can't identify specifically. Um, we do know, though, why they're collected. So the great majority of the collection is put together by the first Roman Catholic Bishop of Christchurch, a man called John Joseph Grimes. Mm-hmm. And he puts them together effectively um, in the 1880s when he, he sent out to Christchurch. And he actually is one of the reasons we decided to put Trina, um, my colleague who's the archivist uh, at, the, at the Catholic Diocese and myself, wanted to put this uh, exhibition together because he's one of those elements of Christchurch history um, that's not talked about a great deal. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Christchurch is often thought of as a a real, you know, as an Anglican city. um, But but Catholicism actually has a a, a rich history in that part of the country. It does. And it's an absolutely fascinating history. And sometimes it intersects with the Anglican history. So Bishop Grimes himself, he's a fascinating man. Um, He's extremely interested in collaborating, actually, uh, with the Anglican Church on some issues. So when it comes to something like education, he's deeply involved. There's Mm -hmm. lots of joint projects, um, aims to get scholarships. Uh, He's very interested in um, actually showing that Roman Catholicism and Englishness are compatible. Uh, So he's often involved in uh, doing things like celebrating uh, Queen Victoria's Jubilee, or he's involved in welcoming Shackleton. uh, And in fact, it gives a speech at a dinner for for him and his crew at one point. So there are fascinating aspects there, but also um, things like um, being vice president of the Society for Protection of Cruelty for Animals. Mm. Um, so other aspects there. And the interesting education, though, I think is particularly interesting because Grimes himself comes from this extraordinarily poor East End of London background. And he's a fascinating example of a man who sort of 
educated out of extreme poverty and so values education. And when he comes to Christchurch, he brings that element of his education and clearly wants to see that develop. And that gives us another element of the exhibition, actually, because his library has ended up at the University of Canterbury. Uh, so that's actually the, I'm not, I'm not just there as a, a medieval historian, I'm <laughs> absolutely fascinated by, by, by the relics. Um, but I'm also fascinated because uh, in 1980, um, his, his very large library comes to the university and we're able to now actually bring some of that material into this exhibition to show a man who is, um, I think, very diverse in his range of interests. Mm. So he has an Irish congregation and that is a difficult thing for him to start with because he's English. Uh, but he brings an Irish Bible with him. Um, but the only one he can clearly get is a Protestant Irish Bible. So he brings right. that over, which is odd. Um, he's got books about socialism, um, which I think possibly are reflecting some of his, his broader interests um, as that very poor East End of London um, child that he was. Um, but he's also coming with copies of books about Henry VIII. In fact, he brings Henry VIII's own writings. The oldest copy we have of Henry's writings is actually from the Bishop Grimes Library. Uh, it's the oldest copy in New Zealand. So, you know, there are these very diverse elements. And he himself, I think, represents this element of Christchurch's history that deserves to be better known. And I think, you know, myself, one of the things that sparked my interest was I, I've just been working on a project with colleagues about the 150th anniversary of the University of Canterbury. And Bishop Grimes is there on the board of the university. He's one of the people involved in that element. So he's linked into the university's history as well. Wow. So wherever you look in Christchurch, you find this man with this tremendous building program. Mm. Um, and if I, if I can, you know, obviously as an historian, we're not supposed to display bias, but I, I, if, if you don't mind me saying so, I just think the Catholic Basilica was a better building um, than the Anglican Cathedral. I know that's a heresy, terrible thing to say, um, but it was just a nicer building. And, and he's responsible for building that in four or five years. I, I was actually going to uh, I was actually going to end on 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 a similar-ish kind of note, Chris, in that I spent a lot of time in that um, Anglican cathedral in, in in Christchurch. I was a boy chorister in there at Cathedral Grammar, but um, I have to say that Catholic Basilica is one of the most beautiful buildings I I, I think Christchurch and possibly even New Zealand ever had. And um, while this is a wonderful discovery. Um, the circumstances that that led to it are, are are really very sad. It must have been been interesting reflecting on that. You are entirely right, and it it is extraordinarily sad. I miss that building. I miss just being able mm. to go into that building and the ambience of the place. It was absolutely wonderful, um, and it was one of those places that you weren't signalled to find. You just sort of wandered in and, yeah. and suddenly found it. Not really foot traffic in that part of town, eh? No, I, I remember I've, I've been in Christchurch for nearly 20 years now. And well, the first time I just wandered in, I just thought, this is, this is so magnificent. Mm. Um, but no, it is sad circumstances. It, it's, and I think that is one of the things we wanted to talk about in the exhibition as well, because there's a sense of lost Christchurch there. And we've made sure, and this is, I, I think Triona's really worked on this as, as the archivist, she's made sure that we represent that building, both before and after. And, you know, I, I think it's wonderful to bring out this element of history and to talk about it. But you're right, we, we have to remember 
that there are sad circumstances in which this discovery was made. I'd, I'd much rather that we hadn't discovered this material. Mm. It had sat there for another thousand years and that the building had stayed up. Mm. I think that, you know, and of course, other aspects of Christchurch and, and, and of course, all the people, you know, they're, 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 these are sad circumstances. Mm. Um, and we're, we're reflecting on it, I think, um, you know, many years on from the earthquakes, but of course they're, they're still with us and they're still with the city. Very much so, yeah. Chris, it's been lovely chatting to you. Um, just very quickly, the exhibition, The Vital Stats on it, so it's at the, it's at the Art Centre and it runs from tomorrow till the 10th, is that right? That is right. It is in the Art Centre. It's on the upper floor of what used to be the old uh, boys' high school, part of the Art Centre. Uh, so it's to Worcester Boulevard. And it is running uh, from tomorrow. We open at 10 o'clock uh, on Waitangi Day, and we are running through until 5 o'clock on Saturday. Beautiful stuff. Chris Jones, it's been really lovely chatting to you. Thank you for coming on tonight. Emil, it's been a pleasure. Kia that's Dr. Chris Jones. Man, what an amazing discovery. There are a couple of really good um, written pieces about that discovery as well. One of them is on the RNZ website, and uh, Ollie Lewis has done a great piece for the spin-off as well, which has got some cool photos. So if you want to check those out, I very much urge you to do so. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.